Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Before I introduce my guest, I have some really exciting news to share. I am now officially part of the Taste of Reality podcast network, which will be hosting my podcast on their site starting now. If you go to realityofreality.com, it will take you to my webpage on Taste of Reality. Once you get on the page, you can listen to all my podcasts on your computer and look at the links and the show notes. There's a lot of other fun stuff on Taste of Reality website you can explore, including the store where, drumroll please, you can buy Reality of Reality swag. Yes, that's real. I've got tote bags, mugs, notebooks, stickers, even a water bottle. It's really crazy, but I'm so excited about all of it. In short order, this will also include advertisers coming on board so we can make the brand even bigger. And as always, thank you guys so much for your support. If you haven't gone to the iTunes store and rated my podcast, please go to Reality of Reality on iTunes. Give me a five-star rating if you can and write a short review too. That really helps. And I'm very, very grateful to every person who does that. Today on the podcast, Bram Pimvitic. Bram is here a second time. He was one of my early guests back when I started the podcast in 2016. And if you want to hear the story of Brand's journey to become a successful TV executive, you can listen back to our original, which was on May 30th in 2016. Today, it's a whole different story. Brand's career has pivoted in a major way. He's transitioned out of television into the business world. He's coaching, speaking, and now writing his new book, The Three-Minute Rule, Say Less to Get More from Any Pitch or Presentation, is available for pre-order now on Amazon. It's coming out in hardcover on October 29th. I have to say, I love this book. It's great for anyone in the TV industry who develops and sells content for a living, but it's also really good for anyone in any client service business because it teaches you the mechanics of how to give a simple and clean presentation accomplishing everything you need to convey inside of just three minutes, which is something that everyone could benefit from. We even get into how politicians can benefit from that. So we get into the book, some of the great stories that he, Brandt, includes in the book. We talk about what made him finally leave television and his next big projects coming up that, spoiler alert, have nothing to do with television. Bram Pimvedic is back on the podcast. I know, the double. A, a long time ago. Yeah. You, you were just at the beginning of my of journey. That's right. I was excited to be there. Yeah. I was like, I, I can't believe I got him on. This is, I'm like, <laughs> I've done like six, like not even, I don't think. So yeah. I was, that was back in May of 2016. And I didn't go back and listen to it because I wanted to come in fresh to this. But of course I do remember the, the broad strokes. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot's changed since I last saw you. Yeah. yeah You're an international superstar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been a crazy ride, right? Well, let's get to the heart of the matter, which is when I told people, just some industry people that I was interviewing you, uh, again, they said the number one question was, is he still in the business? I know. Isn't that weird? Yeah. So let's settle the, cause in your book, you talk about you're doing the show, you're creating the show, you're just selling the show. So yeah. I wasn't sure based on that, if you're still in, <laughs> are you out? I mean, you don't need to be, but what's going on? Let's, let's get to the, let's, let's dispel all the rumors right here, right now. Um, I'm out effectively. I mean, there's no other way to, to couch it. It just, all the stuff that I had developed before that I was working on is sort of like run its course. I don't really have a bunch of new stuff. I got no interest in being in the business day to day. And the, I love the creative yada, yada. Everybody loves the creative, but that's not really what this business has turned into. Right. So the biggest problem for me is, is when you have a taste of freedom, let's call it that <laughs> you realize like, Oh, I don't want to work at the relationships, at the building, the sort of ecosystem of what this business requires day to day. And as a seller, it's this grind that just sucks the life out of you. And you have to push past that all the time. And so when you don't have to do that for a little brief moment, and while I was in the midst of writing the book, I, you know, I had six, seven months where I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing and, and developing on a, on a much lighter scale and, and not running a company. It's like, Ooh, yeah, like just developing is cool. It's fun. Not having to actually work at a company was good. And then when that development sort of like runs its course, you're like, mm, okay, I'm done. 
Yeah, I get it. Trust me. I mean, you're living everyone's dream, basically, (laughs) because you figured out a way to pivot successfully. And I think it's like, you know, the famous thing is like, if you weren't doing this, what what would you be doing? And like, I feel like nine times out of 10 people say flipping houses because it's like right. we have no idea what else to well, do well it's just like everybody's in the same mode that i've always been in is like i didn't believe any had any other marketable skills right like this is not something you graduate medical school to have to <laughs> figure out how to sell and make reality tv so it's this imposter syndrome that we in this business we run around it's high paying business is very sort it can be very lucrative and very illustrative so people love it but you genuinely feel like you can't, you're not qualified for anything else. And what, I, what I've been saying quite a bit lately is you have no idea what you're qualified for. It's unbelievable the skill you develop in the TV business and how easy it's applied everywhere else. I agree with that. But I also think you're really good at selling. And that is not a skill that everybody has. You could be a great producer. You can yeah. be a great, you know, storyteller. But I think, and I think, you know, you obviously have those skills as well. But I think the specific the specific skill of pitching, of selling, you know, I think that not a lot of people are, and that's why I perfect segue to your book. It's, it's such an important book for everyone in our industry and outside, which we'll talk about. But as far as if you're in this business, if you're trying to get into it, if you've been in it for a long time, you think you're the best sales salesperson in the room. This book, um, it is so good and said, I'm not just kissing your butt. I wish I had read it 15 years ago and I related to so many things and, you know, like look, you look at your own projects and you're like, okay, which is the part that the audience is going to see through, which is the, you know, I started right. to look at all these things that we'll get into and you know, everyone needs to pre-order cause that's what I heard is where you make, oh, man. that's the key. So important. Yeah. So we'll drop this next week and everyone's going to pre-order this book. It is a quick read. I have, I should show you my copy that I got from the publisher because I have post-its on literally every page. Oh my God. That's so fantastic. And so then I just distilled it into my it's notes. It's great because that's, I wasn't expecting that, but you're one of many people that have showed me their books. It's got like dog tags and like little post-it things hanging out and highlights. It's almost overwhelming. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. It's so great. And again, it's not, so this is what was really interesting. So I said, I didn't listen back to our podcast, but one of the things that stuck with me was when you were talking about pitching and developing and selling, you talked about sort of the pizzazz factor, how you would, you know, come, come with like cardboard cutouts of things in a party van and bells and whistles and all this really, really big stuff to pitch. And that's what I found so interesting about this book. Cause I feel like all of your years, you sort of like had these lessons that you realized that brought you to this point where you realize like all that's out the window and you don't need all that. And for me, that really was more of a pay attention. Like, let me separate a little bit from the crap that you're hearing before, but I never really strayed far away from, I know how to tell you the basics of an idea really quickly and cleanly and concisely. So you understand them. And the rest then sort of added on that. The problem is I think people will tr- will try to invest in the bells and the whistles and the beautiful slides and all of the stuff before they have their message proper. And that's a problem because you can't cheat. And that was some of the problem for people that ha- had worked with me or under me that, that gone off on their own and done things is that they thought that the bells and the whistles and the personality and, and the goofy stuff that I do was part of the pitch. And it's like, no, no, I already have the pitch nailed. And like, that's what I do really well. The extra stuff is what, you know, sets it apart and gives me a little bit of an advantage. You can't start with that. Yeah. That's a really good point. So I guess the first question is what made you want to write the book? Um, well, I had been working a little bit with companies on the idea of how to pitch and present and simplify their message for a little while here and there, part-time for favors, people would hire me. Right. Like, and that I really enjoyed. And I, and I tell the story where, the very first client that hired me sent messed me this voice message and he basically said, you changed my life. And I was like, what? And that just felt really good. And no network had ever said anything like that. And I just, I'm so like ego driven in that sense that it's just like being important and being important to people and having an impact on their lives was like a rush. And so I started to to talk to other companies and when I could sense that they really needed help and they were like frustrated. They had such a good idea, but there was such frustration because they couldn't make other people get it. I was like, I could come in with my cape and as a white knight and like fix it. And the truth is it was like, it was pretty easy at the first because it was just like breaking out a TV show. Like I do that every day and these people have one product and you can't figure it out. 
And, and so, it and was this is so a fun. very basic question, but of course, I'm so curious because I'm so nosy. How did you know what to charge them? Like, you're this is sort of uncharted territory. Oh, I mean, it's so goofy. And by the way, <laughs> I my the very first client, he said like, I have to hire you. You have to come redo this entire presentation because I just helped him in the middle of a conference. I just said, hey, switch this, switch that, and he and it and it Changed really everything. helped in the moment. And then he's like, hey, I need to hire you. Got to come do this, right? And I was like, well, I, you know, I have a job at the time. I'm like, no, I can't go to you in Houston. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'll come to you. And I said, okay, you come out on the weekend. I'll spend two days. We'll rewrite your whole thing. And so I had to call my investment banker guy and say, hey, I'm like, I don't know. What am I supposed to be charging this guy? And he's like, I don't know. Charge him a ton. Say 15 grand. And I was like, 15? Okay. So I called him and I was like, um, yeah, you come out here. I'll do it. And it's 15,000 bucks. He's like, great. I was like, okay. <laughs> and then as I look at it now, the stock of his company, it was like, right. Yeah, you I realized 15 enough. grand is, yeah, that was is not chump change. Yeah. And then and I it, guess and you it changed everything for him. And then now do you have sort of like a standard way that you work if someone wants to hire Pretty you? Pretty well. I mean, and this is like deep into it, but yeah, I, I know. I'm I've been curious, sort of, though. and I don't mind. Listen, I, it's. You don't have to give me numbers, but no, I'm just no, curious how you listen, evaluate it. I don't it. care about that kind of stuff. I don't know why everybody's <laughs> so like guarded about this stuff. But the truth is, is that I got a little addicted to the process of helping people and being important. Like. Like I said, like I'm pretty narcissistic, pretty insecure. Like you add that all up with a big <laughs> caveman ego and it's like, I'm pretty easy to sway. Right. So <laughs> I found that I, I, you know, I did a lot of stuff with my animal rescue foundation, which I liked a lot. Um, I do a lot of stuff for like St. Jude. So there's a, there's a charitable philanthropic side of me that thrives on being important and like being responsible for doing good things. Right. And so I found like I was confusing a little bit of the charity nature that I wanted with the business because it's like I don't really want a job anymore I don't want to have to work very much at all I've worked a lot for a long time I kind of need like to just do my own thing and so I found myself helping in companies and like I know I can't come and work with you but what's your what's your issue and then I would fix it for them on the phone and I was like maybe I should charge for that so I'm starting to get a little bit more structured whereas if you want to hire me like you really want me to do stuff like you know it costs, I, I charge a lot of money. So it's just like, yeah. And then how many, is it a consultant? Is it a consultancy business now? Like, do you mm. have a certain amount of clients or it's just like, yeah. So I'll do, I have sort of three main sort of pieces. I speak. Yeah. So I'll go do a conference. Like I was doing a big conference this last weekend. So I do a whole keynote conference that does pretty well. I get paid quite a bit for that because I used to say no to everything. Right. And that drives your price up pretty well. And so that was <laughs> kind of convenient. And what so was that? What yes. was that conference? Just for an so example. This one was a sort of like a cannabis expo. Um, and what they were, what I was doing is telling, explaining the power of storytelling to them and the power of how cannabis and the marijuana industries had been on the losing end of the story for 90 years. And I've been working a little bit in the political realm now. I did some lobbying work with some lobbyists and I just did a presidential candidate on their messaging. Oh yeah, it's very cool. Can you say who it was? I can't. I can't, even tell you who is a, I can't even tell you, you who's a man or a woman. I hope it's part of the confidentiality thing. Okay. Which by the way, I had my own. I was like, yeah, well, I don't want anybody knowing I'm working right. for you either. Like, I don't want to be picking sides in anywhere. Wow. So, so I was there to basically tell him like, hey, here's how lobbying works. Here's how the other industries do it. And marijuana and cannabis is a long ways away. You think you're close to federal legalization. You're nowhere near it because you don't own the narrative. You haven't controlled the story. All you do is complain about how alcohol and tobacco has been getting the free ride. And you haven't even looked that they've been giving you the, the roadmap of how to get there. And all you do is whine. And so I walked them through the power of storytelling and how storytelling through the course of the last 90 years has helped and hurt other businesses and how they've just been on the losing end for so long. And here's the new narrative that's being taking the mantle now. And if you want to get legal, federal legalization in the next five years, here's what you're gonna, all going to have to get on board with. So how did you even know that? Did you research or did you, was yeah, it intuitive? It's, now it's a little bit part of what I do because when I work with a new client or I get involved in a business, I'm starting to take a lot of details and I'm just really good at taking a big group of information and distilling it to somebody else. Like I can take what you know and translate it into someone else's understanding really quickly. Which is the whole book and that's the incredible yeah. skill that you're trying to impart to everybody. And it'll be interesting to see if people can actually use it and use it effectively because it's one thing to yeah. know it. It's one thing to integrate it. And it's another thing to actually be able to do it. Yeah. You know, like I found myself just, you know, personally in terms of thinking about my own pitching process, saying things like, 
I mean, there's just so many layers to this, which, you know, after I read your book, I was like, I'm, I'm mortified that I've said that in a pitch because that's like the worst thing you can yeah, say, know. you know, cause I'm trying to think like, this is a premium, you know, six part deep dive, yeah. peel the onion doc. They want to know about all the layers, but really that is really just overwhelms it yeah. as opposed to simplifying it. So just little takeaways like that were so instructive to me. Yeah. And one of my, one of my friends, clients, he runs you know, over in Vegas, he runs Caesars and he said, and I got a quote from in the book now, but he said, like, I was halfway through this book and I've, I've already used it in five presentations in five meetings. And my, uh, one of my other clients, he was the gen- marketing general manager of GM. And he's like, I, I'm three chapters in, I already have an entire whiteboard full of stuff <laughs> for my staff because every, I think everybody's feeling the same thing. Like there's just so much information. It's so hard to cut through the clutter. It's like, everybody's trying so damn hard and I'm basically saying like, hey, you can lose weight and eat, and eat whatever you want. Like it's, I, I'm giving you the easy version, which is like, you can say less and get more. You just got to know what to say. And it, and it's a stronger position. There's a stronger position to be the one who's not shouting and trying to overcook everything like everybody else. Interesting. So what, talk to us. So you've created something called the, is it the whack method or the yeah, W-H-A-C? The I wasn't yeah. sure if we were supposed to say whack yeah. or not. Yeah, whack. So what is what is whack? Um, so I found as I was going through the process, because for me, originally it was just high, high level CEOs, big public companies, right? And so I sort of had the idea that like, well, I'm so fancy. Yeah, I'm such a fancy guy. They're so fancy. I'm speaking on a level that they understand. And then I worked with a plumbing contractor and, a, and like a PTA president. And I found that I was doing the same process with them as I was with a show, as I was with, you know, a biotech company working on type one diabetes, anti-rejection drugs. And what was really cool is that I would put everything into the ca- into the four categories. What is it? How does it work? Are you sure? And can you actually do it? And that order is how people understand. It's how they rationalize decisions. It's it's how our decision making process forms when we conceptualize, we contextualize, and then we actualize. That's how we do things. So, if I'm trying to explain anything to you, and I start with what is it, how does it work? And then I can give you the facts and the figures, the logic and reason that sort of verifies what I've just explained. And then I can tell you how to do it, what it costs, where to get it, how long it's going to take, how we work together, what the next steps are. Right. And if you just follow that, like alone, if you just did that, like it changes the game. People understand things so much better and you just got to lead your audience piece by piece. And this applies to everybody. I mean, this is not just a TV thing, but since a lot of the listeners are in our, in the unscripted industry or just the entertainment industry in general, I, my biggest question was how does this relate to showing your sizzle reel as well? Right? So your sizzle reel is three minutes or under. Are you giving your three minute pitch on top of your three minute sizzle reel? Like how do you structure a pitch or how would you structure a pitch? So because the, the pitch sort of, and, and I lay it out there, there's a few segments to it. Right? There's an opening, there's a reason right. for being, all these kinds of The hook, things. the edge. Yeah, exactly. So I think if you're going to be using your sizzle reel as the piece, what I usually do in the in the meeting is I always give that opening and the reason for being, which is literally what is the reason for you being in this office? How did you come to be excited enough about a project that puts you in that chair, right? And if you can explain that really clearly in a simple story that puts you there, so that later you can verify it and be like, see, I told you, now you understand why I'm so excited, right? So that reason for being, and then from the sizzle, it's like the sizzle's kind of got to start with, here's what it is. And then you kind of got to explain this, how does it work? <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, and it varies. So then I use that sizzle as the meat of it. And then after the cities, when I sizzle was when I would go back to the edge and the callback and put those last finishing touches on it because now you've got people to understand what it is and how it works. So you should have a buyer with an understanding of what the show is. Now you got a couple of pieces to like really things they wouldn't have thought of when they watched the sizzle and that sort of, then you can really tie it together. So if I use bar rescue as a great example, people seem to like that example. I would never have pitched the idea that John Taffer is the next Gordon Ramsay and, and that's how he's, that's why the show will work. But in this, if I had a sizzle of him and, and the way he was doing it, by the end of that sizzle, the audience, the buyer would be saying, damn, he's like, could be the next Gordon Ramsay. And that's when I would have brought out the edge of that pitch, which is the butt funnel. So yeah, you have to say what the butt funnel is. Right. So, and the, and the butt funnel is a good one. I even have a chapter dedicated to it. But <laughs> the idea was, is once you understood what the, what the show was, you understand the potential of it. John pulled out this big blueprint and he's like, here's how a butt funnel works. 
and you're just like, okay, I got to hear this. And he explains that every bar has sort of a lap that you go through when you go check out a bar. You're sort of wandering around the architecture of the bar, looking at them to see who's there, and you take this lap, and everybody does that. And he designs the furniture and the architecture. So there's one part that funnels people together where it's too narrow for two people to walk side by side. So you got to turn sideways to slide past each other, but your butts touch. And when men and women touch butts, endorphins are released. Endorphins are released. You have more fun. You have more fun. You drink more. You drink more. The bar makes more money. And that moment was sort of like, whoa, that's the edge that pushes it over the edge in that moment. And that's kind of what butt funnel sold the show. That's the pilot. So there you go. Right. Now, what if you don't have a butt funnel? Like what if you have, so you just don't know what it is. Yeah. And and I'll show you, I show you how to sort of get there when in the book, you can see what your hook is. The hook is the obvious thing. That's the thing that excites you the most. And the edge is the sort of the story or the example of how it works that if it was working in its best possible scenario, what would it look like? And so when I work with a startup, I work with a lot of startup companies looking for money and stuff. So they don't even, their app doesn't even work yet. And I was like, the edge of your story is what would it look like when it was working perfectly? What would happen? What would the person do? What would that bicyclist be having on, like attached to his bike if they worked perfectly and how big could it be, right? So, and what I try to do is train them to not explain that stuff at the beginning. Like, don't state and prove. Don't start with your big conclusion because everybody's looking to disprove you the second you do that. Yeah. And so I let them lead through that. I learned that in Shark Tank because Mark Cuban always gets so pissed at those people yeah. that like start rattling off like this will help you lose weight or whatever, you yeah. know, and he's it's just like the biggest like, thing. And you're like, yeah. OK, so every second, every word you're going to say, I'm going to be doubting it. Exactly. Trying to poke holes in it. Is that the, <laughs> really the best strength? No, it's yeah. not where you want to be. So one of the stories that I love in the book and what I love about the book is not only how instructive it is, but you use so many great examples from our business to illustrate, you know, either mistakes that you've made or stories that have helped you get where you are. And one of them, which was so relatable, is you tell the story of pitching an idea to Nat Geo to Howard Owens and having just, you know, by accident been in town to have lunch with him in D.C. And it turns out he was trying to pitch your show up. Now, even though Howard was running Nat Geo... As most people know in the business, you know, it doesn't matter if Howard loves it. He's got to pitch it to ad sales. He's got to pitch it to marketing and everybody else to, to buy in. And the problem is, is that sometimes the best salesperson is you, yeah. right? So you happen to be in town and Howard said, Frank, can you just come over and basically come to the room? Yeah, it was, it was like a terrifying moment because <laughs> it, it changed the dynamic of what I realized we were all in for in this business and that. You know, I actually thought we were going to be there for like a celebratory lunch, right? Like, cause Howard loved the show. I sold it directly to him. Right. I mean, what else do you need? Pick it up, buddy. Like, right. I'm going to be there for lunch anyways. We're, we got lunch scheduled. His green light meetings that morning, it's on. And they were like, yeah, Howard wants to, you to join this meeting. And I was like, I don't even know what meeting he's talking about. Like, what is he like? So, you know, I went in to the meeting and it was the green light meeting. And that was like a really strange meeting to be in because everybody was just mean. They're just mean. They want to say no. They're just looking for reasons to piss on whatever's in there. And everybody's been there. Everybody understands it. Everybody knows that, right? We've all seen that. And it's called decision by committee. And it's the new norm everywhere. And I tell you, I will tell this story on stage. And as soon as I say the word decision by committee, I will get an audible groan from every audience. It doesn't matter where it is or what they do because they all understand the same thing. And what it showed me was, is like, yeah, I'm great. I'm a great salesman, but Howard is no slouch, man. Like he is awesome in a room. But I knew the show so well because it was mine. He knew the show really well because he liked it. That's not enough. And so I had to really create, from that moment on, I, I set out to create every single pitch in a way that would basically make it almost impossible for anybody to pitch it any other way. Like here's exactly the way to lay it out so that the information gets across perfectly. And that was sort of like set that tone. Like, But it was terrifying because you realize like, wow, everything we do, somebody else is going to be weighing in on. Yeah. And that hasn't changed. It's only, it's only gotten worse. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I think, you know, another thing that I thought was really smart is that, um, you're not, you don't want to tell something. One of your, one of your chapters is that you don't want to tell the audience something that they already know. Yeah. So kind of expand on that. Explain what you mean by that. Well, what I say is the story that you want to tell from A to Z doesn't need every letter of the alphabet. And I use the, the really good example um, in film directing. An average director and a great director will film all the same scenes, right? They'll film everything. 
the average director will basically include every one of those scenes in his edit because he's partial to them and he thinks he needs to explain everything to the audience. Quentin Tarantino. Right. (laughs) I love that you make that a verb. Don't Tarantino it. Right. Whereas a, a great director knows that you get, you get it. The semblance is there. You'll be able to put it all together. And so that form of storytelling, the way Sorkin does it and like, like you fill in the gaps, you fill in those extra letters and you can only do that when you have a layer of confidence in your information that you're willing to let it stand on its own. And people just sense that right away. They know right away, like if you're not trying and you've all been to the party where someone's introduced themselves and they're telling you how great they are and they say so much and they're trying to impress you so much that you are the exact opposite. You're like, this guy's probably a bullshitter because he's saying so much. And it's the opposite when someone's there and they sort of tell you what they do, but they don't really elaborate. And you just know there's more to this person like, wow. And that just carries for every single thing we do in communication today. It does. And it's human nature. Like I always say, like if my example is like, if you're wearing a lip gloss that I love, don't tell me, oh my God, look at my lip gloss. Is my lip gloss great? Let me tell you the name, the brand that, cause I'll immediately not want to buy it just because you're selling it so hard to me. <laughs> right. But if you just wear it and you look great, I'm like, Ooh, where'd you get that lip gloss? I yeah. love it. You know? Well, and I, when I was working with the, <laughs> the presidential candidate, I was kept saying like, you sound like a politician. You sound like a politician. Joe Biden. <laughs> and I will find the out. candidate said, because I've practiced now, so I don't yeah, say he or the she, candidate, the candidate said, uh, I am a politician. And I was like, well, do you think that it'd be good for a salesman to hear you sound like a salesman? Because politicians today have the same reaction to people. Like people do not want to be sold. So true. And that's where their issue is on the political side is very difficult because no one's teaching them how to do anything different than they've been doing for the last 30 or 40 years. Like they have the same rhetoric, the same style, and they haven't clued into the fact that people kind of are over that. Like, Oh, I get it. Yes. We all want those wonderful things. Okay. Could you just explain how you're going to do it? Like just try that for once and maybe not say it 57 times in a row, the same thing, the same way with different language. Like I get it. Like, and so I said, like, is your, okay, I get it that where you're at, but, is your idea that you want to be the candidate that pisses people off the least. That's how you win is that you're the one who does it the like the least bad. And that sort of made everybody laugh and kind of <laughs> tension a bit, but we know it, it's not Andrew Yang. We know was, we've narrowed it down the field now. Well, how do we do that? Cause he's not a politician. He's a businessman. Right. Yeah. Busted. There it is. <laughs> so um, it's interesting. Okay. So you tell a great story, um, in exactly in this vein about, um, when you were, where were you at three ball? When you, the guy that came in no. to kind of pitch the sales course, yeah, tell that story that because one. it's again, counterintuitive sort of like the always be closing and you know, the sort of Glenn, yeah. Barry, Glenn Ross. It's actually a really good story. And it really affected me for a long time. Um, you know, we were at three ball and things were just going off the chart. Like yeah. we had a really good run there and it was, it was a great setup and everything worked. And one of the guys we had brought in was doing all our brand integration. And we had just closed this huge, closed a huge deal with Walmart on extreme makeover weight loss. And like things could not have been going better. And he said he wanted to do like a, like an apprentice style show for the next great salesman. Right. And I was like, like, no, that's not going to work. Nobody wants that. Salesmen aren't aspirational. And I remember him trying to pitch me on the idea that like everybody's in sales, everybody's selling something like it'll totally be great. And I was just like, yeah, it's just not aspirational in the sense. It's not going to (laughs) work. And then he was like, does it matter? Because I can get the brands to pay huge money to be involved. And every week we'll have the salesmen competing to sell the new product of some big brand. So Xerox is going to come in for this episode. You got to sell their new printer or photocopy. Riveting. And we're, and I was like, okay. <laughs> and then he's like, yeah, then they got to buy our sales training and our guy that we have is going to cut us in. We're going to own a piece of it. It's going to be printing money. And that kind of got my attention. And I was like, great, we'll just buy it on or some sort of bargain right. thing. Like, oh, okay, we're in. Yahoo. <laughs> so we start putting it together. I'm trying to develop the show. So it actually looks like a TV show. It's still pretty thin. And he's like, yeah, let's bring this guy in. He's going to show us his thing. That'll inspire you. will be excited. And I was like, okay, this is, this is, this is our person that we're going to be hitching our wagon to that's going to be our lead person out there. And the guy was a total and complete disaster. He was an embarrassment. And halfway through his sort of explanation of what he does and what he teaches, I wanted to literally throw him out of the building. (laughs) And he was telling the story about how he 
would go into a client's office that he was trying to sell something to and he would look through the room for pictures on the wall and pictures on their desk and try to like find something he could make up a story and be like yeah so i was bass fishing the other day and you're a bass fisherman too and like oh my god he was teaching other people to do this right (laughs) Right. and the puppy dog clothes and all just all these things and even back then i was like what the hell is going on like if i walked into any room like that I'd never work in this town again. Yeah, you'd be laughed at. Yeah, and that's when Kurt was like, man, well, then you should be hosting this show. And I remember thinking, like, I really should. I really, like, I, like yes, I should. And then that went away, but so right. and here I am today. So Right, but so, but your point of the whole thing yeah. is that, like, that's not the way to go. It doesn't that, work like, anymore. Yeah, it doesn't work. It just work. doesn't work. Yeah. Like, like, maybe it, it did, right, like in the 70s or... Yeah, was but that the, that's, listen, the, the truth is that it used to be that you could make big promises. Right. And people had to decide whether to believe you. Well, that doesn't need anymore if i tell you i have a pen that writes a four mile long strip without losing one second of ink it's like buy this pen please okay i know you don't want to get political but isn't this exactly how trump got elected though i mean he's the ultimate confidence man right like this is exactly what he did to get his base and does to get his base riled up is tell these things you're talking well, about. Well, but the difference is if I tell you this about buy this pen, back then I had to decide like, okay, do I believe you? Like, what am I into? Because what do you do? Go down to the library and grab an encyclopedia and right. look up the like <laughs> coefficient of drag on pens? Like, no. But today, if I tell you I've got this pen that does this great thing, you're like, okay, hold on, let me get my phone. And you Google it. And it's Theory. like, yeah, well, it's on Amazon. You only got two stars and people say it's not possible. And this other pen down those that these other guys sell does a five mile strip and it's $2 cheaper. So that idea that you can like present something and make a big claim and like hope people don't figure it out. Like that's just gone. Like that doesn't even exist anymore. And so now it's more about like, okay, I'm just going to basically tell you the basics and whether you like it or not with Trump, like it had nothing to do with any of that. What it had to do with like, he just, his ideas on the dumb crap was easy to understand. And so okay. everybody else just threw everything else out. I say, okay. Which they do anyways. Like they throw everything else out you say right. anyways. It right. really boiled down to, do I dig the basic policy elements more than the other guy? Okay. And everybody on one side was like, oh my God, he said bad things. And they just didn't understand that no one gives a crap about all that stuff. And it's happening in the presidential debates right now. No one cares about all the crazy, goofy rhetoric either side. They just like, what are you going to actually do? And do I buy into your stuff more than the other guy? Right. And so the more either side goes up and down and crazy and wild, the less it actually matters. Nobody cares. Fascinating. I could talk about it. I could go on that tangent all day, but I won't. <laughs> so I'm curious about your relationship with Tony Robbins because you mentioned him in the acknowledgments and I think you mentioned him in the body of the book as well. Yeah. And I've seen you post about him before. I'm not surprised at all that you guys are friends. I want to know how you met him, what you learned from him. So has he read the book? Yes. It's a funny, funny story. So, you know, I was in the midst of TV land doing my TV thing, developing a show with him. We became sort of friends and he's like, hey, we can't really be friends unless you come see what I do. And I was like, okay, well, yeah. And he's going to be in San Jose. We're in the middle of pitching a TV show. We fly up there. Was this after? He had a show at some point. Yeah, this is just recently. This oh. is like last year. Oh, wow. Actually, okay. it is last year. Oh, wow. So we're developing a new show. We're about to start pitching it. We have to. He's going to do a show in San Jose. It's four days. Four days, 14-hour days. Do you get to pee? Is it one of those where they lock you up and you can't? They basically lock you up. You got to run out and run back, right? And I remember like, (laughs) because I went there with him, I'm in the front row there staring at him. So it's not like I can just leave. So I'm kind of stuck there. And I remember texting my wife saying like, I don't know if I can do four days of this. This is ridiculous. Right. That was hour one. But when I realized I was trapped and it was going to happen, I just decided like, okay, that's it. Like if I'm spending four days on something, I'm getting something out of it. So I just went into this mode where it's like, okay, Tony, you say jump, I jump. You tell me to hug five people beside. I'm hugging seven people. It's on. You went all in. I went all in. Did you cry? I mean, I'm not much of a crier. It's not really a crying thing. It's more like, am I cheering and yelling? But it really, it boiled down to the, the idea of like, what am I doing in life and what do I actually want? Why am I doing it? And what's gonna make me happy in the next bit? And none of those things included TV. That's all there is to it. Wow. So this, so Tony Robin, that weekend was when it all kind of came oh, to you. It oh. happened on his plane back Holy when he shit. said like, how did you think it was? And I was like, this is the last TV pitch I'm ever doing. Oh my God. I like had my goldfish, Jerry Maguire, like I'm out of here at that moment. Now to be fair, like once I got back to town and I was like, <laughs> okay, maybe I should take a couple days here and make sure that. <laughs> Still need paycheck. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. But, and then he was just, so, you know, he's just excited that I'm going to make this big life change. And so 
it got to the point where I realized like, okay, that's it. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. And it just gave me the, the idea that like, I don't need more money. That will always find its way. Like I was only doing it for the money anyway. Right. At that you were point. afraid to yeah, walk and away. I, and exactly what it was. And it's like, could I see the vision of selling the book, having this as a real business? Like not really, but I could sort of see that it could happen. And just having the belief that it, was going to happen as opposed to like, Oh, I got to get it all in place first. Just made me sort of take that leap. Wow. And from the day that I decided to be out of my deal, six weeks later, I had a book deal and it's just like, it's a six figure advance. It's a huge advance for a book. And it was just like, I cannot believe this happened six weeks after Tony Robbins, basically. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I want for, how'd you meet Tony Robbins? Uh, Sean Perry, WME. Wow. Yeah. And did you sell the show? We did and didn't. I mean, it, there's a lot of complications okay. with it of like selling it and making it and closing deals, <laughs> you know, those kind of things. So. Okay. So we're not going to see, we're not going to see the show. It's maybe it's difficult. <laughs> yes. Okay. okay. So how do you get, how does somebody who's not been an author? I mean, I know you wrote <laughs> articles like tell us all because I want this, you know, for everyone. How yeah. do we get a six figure advance on a book? I mean, it's a great idea, but you're not a known, you're not 20. Oh, yeah, I don't, you may be now, I don't, but I don't, how did well, here's it the funny thing, though. It's a business book, right? Yeah. I don't really run a business. Like, <laughs> yeah, I have big now. titles and big companies, but, like, really, I am get the big titles and stuff because I sell shows. Like, it's not because I run a business. My management style, not something you want to emulate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you don't want me to be teaching you how to manage a business, right? That's not what I do. I don't write books. That's pretty clear. I don't even really read books. So, <laughs> I'm like, this is going to be a thing, right? So, but... When someone, the, a book agent that I w- worked with, because I really wanted to, you know, have uh, do the book. So I, I got a book agent that I had met. She'd seen me speak a couple of years before. And, and I couldn't tell WME that I wanted to write a book, right? Because you can't tell your reality agent you want to write a book because then he calls the, the book department right. and says, my reality client wants right, to write right. a book. Like, um, that's yeah. a big favor. It never goes anywhere. And I didn't want to put him in that position. Right. So this book agent only does business books. That's the only thing she does. She in New York? She is. And she's just, and she's really cool. And I just said, hey, I want to write a book. She's like, yeah, so does everybody. <laughs> right. She's like, I'll send you this template. This is how you write a book proposal. You write a great book proposal, you got a shot. You don't write a book, great book proposal. You're just one of those people that wants to write a book. But isn't it all about Twitter followers and Instagram? No, I, okay. So that all. was what an agent told me. No, that's totally wrong because Twitter followers, Instagram followers, they're, they're useless. They don't sell books. There's no such thing as influence. Your so audience that's is all totally wait. Yeah. And okay. everybody knows that. Good to and, know. And everybody knows a that. A few in the years industry. ago, that was the rap. Yeah, because people thought that actually had right, made realized, a difference. Now right. they realize, like, oh, crap. Like, there's a few pop culture celebrities that sell stuff, but right. there always has been Twitter or not, right? Yeah. So, and listen, I got a pretty good following. Like, it's not, it's not, no, air, no, no, but, I know, but like, but you know, millions. Yeah, it's not that. It okay. has nothing to do with that. It has to do with how good of the material and your plan can you put together. And the book proposal is really difficult okay yeah i know that one of the so interesting because one of the things that relates to the book proposal and your book is about the audience um not trying to hide stuff that you know is going to be bad or the question and i'm guessing just the little i know about writing book proposals is you have to suss out the marketplace oh yeah one of the main things you need to prove is why there's so many business books there's so many sales books pitching books and it's also like which books Right, like which books are kicking ass, yeah. and then why are they doing that? Right, what do you do differently? Exactly, and so, so you had to spend a lot of time doing research. Yes, yeah, so there's two pieces to this. One is it is like Navy SEAL training, okay, <laughs> right. in the fact that it weeds out the people that want to be Navy SEALs and the people who are going to be Navy SEALs. Those are two different things, and the people who get through doing a book proposal will write a book. You may not sell it to HarperCollins, you may not sell it to Random House, but you will write a book if you can go through that process. But the second part was, and this is the brilliance of it, is that like I've written a million treatments. I've written a ton of Bibles. I've had to deliver the highest level outlines to get million dollar shows picked up, right? So detailed, pure story driven explanation of things in in a linear order, like I've been doing a long time. So I took the two and a half weeks it took and I plowed into this book proposal and it was really, really good as, as high a level as I could possibly do, which turns out in entertainment, if you can succeed in entertainment, whatever you're doing is going to be at a very, very high level. And in, so, in other words, compared to sort of other proposals that yeah. are out there. Oh, she you, called me within about yeah. five minutes of getting, she's like, wow, <laughs> like this is really good. I'm sending it out right now to everybody. Wow. She didn't say she's going to send it out to the major publishers. No, she just said like, Hey, 
like do the book proposal we'll talk and was so i did and she's like whoa yes oh my god so they sent it out and it was like hey they want to meet everybody wants to meet in new york and i was like great wank, wank. I and didn't know like, that no, was a thing. That that's pop, what I said right? too. I just thought she they said, just "Hey, said... yeah, no, they don't really usually meet unless there's something there because they don't care what you look like or the right, way you talk. Right, it's an off. It's what's on the page." So she said, "This is this is a big thing. You you know, this is wow. like get out of here." So I came to New York, and I remember her saying, "Like, no, don't get nervous. You know, I know these are big executives, big buildings in New York, and I was just like, yeah, um, like this is a, this is I, nothing. <laughs> I probably do okay here. Like, this is probably my world. Like, let me handle this. Yeah, got this. But what was interesting was I don't think the book." like publishers are used to that right like right because most of their authors are right so that you come in you do the dog and pony yeah because it was the reason they wanted to meet you to see if you could bet like who is this guy yeah what can we do with him how do we build it like great on a press tour yeah and and mostly like how much i guess now that i understand the process it's like how much are we going to put out on this like we're interested like what's it going to take you know what i mean and so i i really tore those meetings up like i really (laughs) tore them up because how, how, what was the thing that, that just a, the level of confidence I have in my information and my ability to do this at that time. Like, yeah. Oh my God, like you're on fire. You want me to explain to you how I <laughs> pitch and sell and create and, and make people do stuff and what I've been doing out on the road and the speeches I've given and the companies that I've changed and, and you know, and I, and I tell the story of the San Francisco 49ers and the president of the 49ers yeah. and helping like, they're just like, what? Great story. Yeah. And it's just like pitching a TV show. Like I pitched a million of them. With the biggest networks and huge talent, like it does not get me like nervous. I'm not like sweaty palms. Right. I am there to dominate that meeting. And also, you do have a unique perspective. Like, there's really no one from our business that's kind of done something like this. Right. That makes the funny part is, is that there's about I don't know a thousand producers that could do this, (laughs) that pitch better, that bigger, that have sold more, that have better credits, that have been more involved and stuff. Like, there's so many of them. But the way life works is like whoever puts their hand up is the person that does it. And like, if you, if you sit around waiting for enough credits and for enough accolade, like accolades and to be qualified, like you're never going to get there. I'll tell you the other funny part of that book, selling the book story is. Were you by my, yourself, by the way? Was yeah. You and the agent? Just me and the agent. And yeah. so the funny thing, she was all excited, right? Yeah. Oh my God, you're going to get offers. And I was like, offers for what? Right. She's like, they're going to give you an advance to write the book. I'm like, I thought we were here to get them to agree to publish it if I wrote it. She's like, no, they might pay you like $25,000. Like this could be a big thing. You know, publishing is not what it used to be, but this could be a big thing. And, and so I was so excited at that. And she sent an email that was like, Hey, uh, my client is so great. And we're taking offers at Tuesday at 10 a.m. Right. They do the auction. Yeah. And I was like, I can't believe it. And she CC'd all the publishers together on one email. That is so boss. And it was just like by 10 a.m. Like. 10 23 a.m on tuesday morning i had closed the deal wow and it was just a it was just a crazy experience and the publisher treats me like talent i love it which is so weird it must be so weird because she's handling you so weird and you're like i handle now i understand why (laughs) talent gets huge egos and becomes (laughs) like deranged and difficult because if you treat people like this of course that's what's gonna happen like where's my trailer yeah they're like everything i say is so like golden and they (laughs) they can't say no they want to they have to go seven steps to just to say no and i'm like just if this is a bad idea, just tell me. They're like, like, oh, yeah, it's so fun. So then, once you dug in and you started writing it, yeah, what was that process like? Was there a lot of? Was it like network notes? Like you, know, you get stuff no, back that you don't I'll even tell understand. You my story. <laughs> the truth is, it was very nerve wracking, very difficult because sure. I had still had a, a layer of belief that even though it's the largest publisher in the world and like the largest, it was a very big advance for that. Time. Like, anyways, it was a big thing. Yeah, and but I still felt like I sold it. I still felt like that I was doing what I do, which is, you know, like I'm, I convince people. So it felt real, but it didn't give me the ultimate layer of confidence. Like, Oh, I'm going to be an awesome author. Now I'm going to write a great book. I didn't have that. I had, Oh my God, I'm awesome at selling stuff. I sold <laughs> right, a book. Now to write it. <laughs> right now I got to write it. So that was so difficult. And like anybody listening, if you've ever sent in the first rough cut of a new show, you know how difficult that is. And that's probably because, and you still produce television. Imagine the first rough cut of the first show that you've ever produced in your entire life to the biggest network ever. And nobody else has anything else to do with it. You shot it. You did the sound. You did the interviews. Yeah. You're in it and you directed it. Did like, you show it to people? Did you have? No, no, so I was, was way it, too nervous for wow. that. Wow. So what was the first reaction? So I got notes back. They, so what they do is they take two chapters, right? And they say, Hey, um, if it's going the right direction, we'll tell you. If it needs a re like a re 
like if we're going to point you a different way, we'll tell you like, that's what they do. They share it and they talk and be like, Hey, we think you need to develop these characters or we think you need to explain this or we think it's taking you long, whatever. So he sent it in and he sent me back like within a day. Like he's like, Hey, we went through it. Looks good. Keep going the way you're going. We'll do detailed notes later, but don't bother doing them. Let's just keep, if you're, if you're on a roll, you keep rolling. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> so then like a week and a half later, he sends over, Hey, here are my detailed notes. But again, I think you should just keep going where you're at. I like what you're doing. This is all great. But you know, Okay, then like 30 minutes later, he says, hey, Brandt, uh, listen, I, I just want to make sure that my notes don't, like, I don't want you to think we don't think you're doing a good job. Like, we are really excited about it, and, and we think it's going the right way. I just, I don't know if my notes maybe sounded like, we, you know, it wasn't as good as it is. And I was just like, oh, my God. So I remember I had to stop the car and, like, get my laptop out and, like, oh, my God, what are these? And the notes were like, hey, um perhaps maybe this is such a good point. We could move this up a little bit. It's like, I wonder if you could give us a few more sentences on how this might be. Oh, so they were like the easiest notes in the the world. The softest things (laughs) you've ever read in your life. And I emailed him back. You must have laughed your head off. Yeah, and I emailed him back and said, here's the first note I got on Bar Rescue on the pilot, just for comparison. It said, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen in my life. Do you even know how to make television? Question mark. Oh my God. And I was like, so I'm gonna be okay with notes. You you said whatever is you need. Is that to. true? Hundred percent. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they're like, we might have to send somebody into the edit bay to fix this. You guys are so crappy. That's basically what we were at. God love it. <laughs> God love them. So this was so it was ultimately a really fulfilling experience. Yeah. Then. So like the the first two chapters took me months, and then the next twelve banged out in another couple of months. Like it was fast. And that. And was what was the your moment. process? Did you wake up early? Yeah, I'm an early riser, and yeah. I write. So okay. I'd get up and I'd go outside and I'd get in one of my out whatever chair I was picking that day and I would just pound through stuff. So fast. you're not a procrastinator. No, not for that stuff. I'm up and working really early. I'm more like a lose steam er. Right. Like that, by that's two me. or three o'clock. By it's, four. Like, <laughs> it's over. <laughs> We're almost reaching witching hour. Yeah. Here. So I would do I would do that and then I would just crank through it as fast as I can and then a thoughts would come fast and furious. And then I would just sort of like go back and outline it. But the, again the book proposal like it's amazing how much of that outline stayed. It gave me like some framework. Right. And that, and once they were liking it, I I started to get excited about stuff and I started to find, you know, more elements that I could build in and it, and it came together and they're very good. Like they're very, a publisher and an author are a team, a network and a producer should be a team, (laughs) should be a team and they're not. And it really showed how dysfunctional and messy the system is because the the publisher and the editor the publisher made the book better and they they changed things and they helped write stuff when they he would send stuff back and i was like yeah that's better. i'm looking at the <laughs> at the word document with like deleted this and retyped this i'm like oh my god the guy like retyped some stuff right he didn't just tell you what you were doing wrong it was amazing and wow. it was just such a thrilling experience to be like this is a great story can you give us more on this and like I was like, yes, I can. And, <laughs> and it was just like, we're, we are on the same team from the second it starts. What's the follow-up book? Um, I'm probably going to do more. We're actually talking about it right now. Um, so I'm going to do a lot. I do quite a bit of speaking into the high intensity living and Wait, high performance. And is that the same thing as reject average? It's, it stems from that a little bit. Yeah. And then can you explain a little what that is? Um, so basically what I do is I, I, I've been working with some professional athletes on whatnot on how to maintain their level of excellence, right? I'm a pretty high intensity guy and I'm, I always joke, like I'm a high intensity dad is where it started. It's like, I'm going to be as good at being a parent as I was as a producer, right? Yeah. I bring the same intensity at home as I do to the office and I started bringing that to everything I do. And so what I, and athletes are easy for them to understand it because it's like, Hey, the reason why they practice and practice so hard at the highest level of intensity in practice is so they can maintain that when they go to the game. And then when I explained to them, it's like, except for you go home in the middle of that. And then you're an average person at home and you go on vacation and you're average again. And you're sort of like, okay, dad and okay, husband and okay, vacation and okay on the weekend. And like, how was your morning? Was it just okay? Oh, I'm sorry. Now you got to ramp up and be a champion. Like, and the ramp up is the hardest thing for people to do. And you want to effectively match intensity and be able to be, a spectacularly good champion level weekend haver or vacationer. Or if you're at a restaurant who, if they were giving a prize for who had the best interaction with a waitress today, who would win? Could you win that contest? And that, so I have a whole training thing that I do on that. It's been really, really well accepted. I'm going to write the antidote book. That's called 
why I like relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. People ask me that all the time. They're like, like do, do you, you take re- a day yeah, off? Do and you? I was like, uh, yeah, I'll take a day off and sit by the pool and I'll do it at the highest level. I will crush that. <laughs> I will take a day off and relax and do nothing better than anybody in the world. I'm the best relaxer. Yeah, but that's kind of the point where it's yeah. just like anything you're going to do, you can do it at a high level. And if you practice doing that enough, you'll start doing more things at a high level. Okay, so there's, I don't know if you read the New York Times, but my favorite thing in the whole world, because as I said earlier, I'm nosy, is it's called Sunday Routine. And they just interview somebody who's, you know, notable. They could either be sort of a local New York celebrity or somebody bigger, and it's how they spend their Sundays. So give our listeners, because, you know, you are somebody aspirational who people want to know, sort of like, what are the tricks of the trade? Give us your average day or your average weekend day. I'm up at 4.30 usually. Alarm or no alarm? No, no alarm. I'm usually Boom. at four thirty or five, and I'm I'm How many on my computer. Uh, I'm I'm dead asleep by ten o'clock. Okay, like it's hard for me to stay awake. Okay, so six to seven hours. Yeah, I'm just, and so I'm up. Let's say five o'clock, and within about I don't know two and a half minutes, I'm on my computer, and I'm like, Are you checking news? Are you checking emails? No, I'll I'll hopefully be diving into some project or something I have to write because it's the only time I have enough like clear driven focus because I'm sleeping. Yeah, like. I'm dri- I'm focused and I create stuff and then with about 45 minutes I'm like on Facebook and Instagram and wondering why people <laughs> are liking my stuff but they don't send me messages and why, you know what I mean like I do that whole thing because it's part of the Hey, at least it's not the first thing. Yeah, oh god. Right? That's impressive. I know. So so then I um, I basically do that till like midday in, in my midday is like 10 o'clock in the morning <laughs> right. and then I'll go Is there and- coffee? No, no coffee. No coffee. No. And I, I knew, intermittent fast. I knew it. Oh, you do? Yeah. So are you 6, 14? What's the... Yeah, what's I go, the... I eat from noon till about 8. Okay. That's about it. That's okay. my window. Got it. And so, are you eating a particular diet? No, then I eat like a moron. Okay. Right? And then you just stop. Do you drink alcohol? No. Okay. I don't drink. Okay. So it's, I basically only drink water anyway, so that's okay. sort of been my... It allows me to eat McDonald's or, you know, <laughs> or whatever I want. Okay. That's my trade-off. Got it. So... And then I'll do a bunch of animal stuff. I'll go see my horses, which is sort of my biggest oh, yeah. thing now. Wasn't there a turkey? There was a turkey. There is no longer a turkey. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's bad. Okay. But, but you're an animal lover. That's your yeah. thing. So I have five horses at the house, so I'll go oh usually gosh. see the horses. And on a Sunday, I will 100% ride one of the horses for sure. Nice. With your and kids, do they ride too? No, they don't ride. Oh my gosh. No, I know. What happened? I'm the only one that rides. I don't know. They just don't. They're not. My kids are like sensory overload, right? right. They've done so many things. <laughs> the house is so cool. The yeah. yard, they're done. Yeah. So that's wow. why I started my travel adventure club. Yeah. Was because like I needed people to play with. I needed some playmates. So Oh, really? And I realized like, well, I'm not going to go jet skiing unless like someone invites me. No one's inviting anybody to do anything in this godforsaken town. So you've created this. So I'm just like, okay, well, I'm going to put it together. And then all of a sudden everybody goes jet skiing. I want to do one of them, by the way. I know I, I saw you, Elliot Goldberg. Awesome. My friend. Yeah. It looked like such a great family yeah. thing. It's such a great way to unplug. Yeah. And it's just... You know, we want to do stuff. We want to be involved in things like we, but the reason why we don't get out and do more with each other in a town like this, because we're not in a sense of community with neighbors is that we don't, it's not a small town. So unless someone puts it together and sends an invite out, you won't go. And we just did that. We just went on a downhill mountain biking adventure. And I was realized like not one of us would have gone up there to Mammoth to do this if I didn't put this adventure thing together. Not one. And so it was like, oh, this is why I do it, because it gets me out doing fun stuff. And that's kind of where I'm at right now, where I just kind of want to do fun stuff. But you're living every day to its fullest. I mean, not to sound totally corny, but that's what you're doing. Well, I'm trying to squeeze as much joy out of the day as possible. And I look at every day, as many situations as I can, and be like, how would I win at this situation? How would I, what, what could I possibly do that would make me feel joy in this moment and i try to do as many of those moments as i can i've been training i'm training for that and speaking of training is there a workout during your day too yeah i just started yoga for the first time i have a very fancy nfl friend who's like big into yoga and he's a big muscly burly sort of bearded man man (laughs) and if he says like yoga is cool you should do yoga like i'm okay i'm doing yoga and i love it do you yeah so it's just so I do a little of that, but I'm like, I have a standing desk. I run around. I like yeah. my desk is outside of my house. So I'm running around doing stuff all the time. Like, yeah. So I'm pretty active to begin with. So yeah. I kind of dig that. So. And then is there any TV in your life? Do you watch TV? <laughs> <laughs> I Man, feel like you're girl, not. There hasn't been TV in my life right? for a while. Like you're not watching anything either. Not really. Wow. It hasn't been for a while. I remember there was a time when like, 
Well, that, that when I was making my way in this business, I watched every single thing that ever came out. I could have told you every single show that anybody sold. I knew every single pitch. I met with every single net. Like I knew everything. That was what I was doing. And I just became out of that mode. I got old and slow and like, I'm just an old, slow quarterback who just like kind of out of the game now. Like, yeah, but I'm jealous. Like I yeah. don't even know what my life would look like without <laughs> television. I watch so much. I know. It's sad, but it, it does bring me joy, I have to say. It's yeah. mostly, by the way, scripted. I mean, there's obviously unscripted. But Which is funny. But the scripted like, how many unscripted really people will tell you that? Yeah, no, they, I, like, yeah. they only watch scripted TV. Well, it's like, that's not healthy for our business. Yeah, right, right? exactly. So, well, no, I still have my housewives, yeah. don't get me wrong. But okay. I send, like, you know, I send emails all day. I'm right. crafting and creating stuff. And yeah. Like, and if it wasn't for the book and all the stuff, I would be out doing, three weekends a month, I'm doing some adventure. Yeah, wow. So I'd be out doing something, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. And then in terms of, like, how you see, because you've designed your life, right? So yes. you've had, like, the... And I, and I speak a lot to that and I have a lot. And like I said this on the other, on another podcast, like I've had more than 20 people from our business that, you know, most of them have called like, Hey, we should grab lunch. Yeah. You know, doing whatever. And I came into town very (laughs) much. Lunch is a little harder. It's like, well, I'll come out there. I'll come out and see you. And I'm like, please tell me what you're going to come out to Santa Clarita. Okay. Yeah. And they'll come out to the house and it's like, that's the main question is like, Hey, I need to effectively design my life for when this business implodes or I don't love this, whatever it is. Right. And it's all been transitional. What's next stuff. And I mean, a lo- I cannot believe how many people, and now I've developed an entire routine for it. <laughs> I should be doing a course on it. You should, but it's, it's very exactly that designing your life and like putting the pieces together and producing it. Anybody who can produce can produce. Yeah. You just only are doing it in one area. I agree. I mean, I feel like I've taken a page from this and I've moved, away I mean I'm obviously still have TV projects yeah. but you know the podcast and I have this feature film and I'm hoping to do more of them and of course I think the biggest fear everyone has is the money right so it's yes. like you know and then again like it it takes a while right like it yep. doesn't happen out of nope. the gate like you've been honing the skill for a really long time yeah. and now you're seeing the fruits of your labor yeah. pay off but that didn't happen it's not like you woke up one day and you're like hey three minute rule I've no. got an idea no no and it was and it, it it grew and and Forbes was a big piece of it. Yeah. Writing for Forbes is a big piece. And I started that. And like I said, I was speaking before. So all those things sort of like funneled into when I was going to do it. But if I, if I was still doing TV full time and focused, focused, focused and trying to do this on the side, like it never would have happened. I agree. I, it could, I would never agree. wait to make, wait. The, like I couldn't wait till the, till it was clear the same money in TV is, was going to be here. Like it's taken a while to be like, okay, well now this is going to be a lot of money. This is cool. I'm, I'm going to be in this, but I would have done it regardless. Like it wasn't about the money. It really wasn't at that time. Cause you know what you need, what you spend at certain level, particularly people in this business, like, yeah, you, you know, you're never going to spend the money you make this year. You've already got and that, like you're just stockpiling it on the end. Yeah. Well, and the idea and, that you're just going to end up with no money at the end of the last day is kind of crazy. No, but everyone has, especially in this town, has a skewed sense of it all. Totally. Skewed. And fear driven. It's yeah. all fear driven, right? Yeah. So lastly, you have this podcast that you're going to start, which is different than your yeah, quote the unquote, I'm not normal. One, yeah. yeah. So talk a little bit about this. So it's because- called IPO, Ideas, People, and Opportunity. And it's with this big investment bank that I've been working with off and on for a few years and basically I'm interviewing huge business icons that have had big ideas and sort of changed the narrative of our culture or our business specifically. And I want to talk to them about who they are and the idea they had and the opportunities that I, that idea has created in the marketplace. And it's been really exciting because that's really where a huge piece of my passion is in the business side. And it gives me a chance to explore that and meet great people and kind of go through it in a different way than, and I would. It's cool because, like, I you know, I did a, I did TV development with Mark Cuban, and then in, you know, interviewing for this is completely different conversation, and and that is goes. He going to be on? I well, we'll see. Oh There's my gosh. Lots of I'm obsessed with him. You are obsessed. That's He's cool. my number one. Like, if he was running for president, I would drop whatever I'm doing and, I, and campaign a, for him. He's a pretty cool dude. Yeah. He's 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 my favorite shark. Yeah, and that's my favorite show. Um, I love that. Oh my God. I'm obsessed. Yeah. So it's been a good run and I love, I like, I love this topic and I love business. So like the one I just did and it just went online right now is like, um, so like Christy Hefner, Hefner's daughter ran Playboy for 25 years. She was the longest running female public company CEO in the world. Really? Yeah. Wow. And it was like, when you, when you look back at her career, 
which part of the podcast was like, if I asked you, she's 27 years old, she got the job of president of Playboy. Do you think it's because of her business prowess or because she was Hugh Hefner's daughter? Right. You ask 99 out of 100 people, they're all going to say the same thing. It's because of the daughter. It's like, well, okay. You listen to this podcast, now you're going to be that one person. And yeah. soon anybody who listens to it understands, like, she's so badass. And everything you know about the brand Playboy now in modern times, Playboy TV, like all of that stuff was all her. She, she was the first online magazine ever. She's wow. the first magazine to go online. That was her idea. And like, you're listening to her and you're like, oh my God, 25 years she ran this company at the highest level and took it from nothing. And I mean, it's just amazing, her story. And you talk to her and that just was like, it just blew my mind. And Kathy Ireland was the other one that was just like, I'm a big fan of hers. You think she's a supermodel that's turned into a CEO, billion dollar company. Is it really? Yeah. It's been, wow. it's been her company has been in the top 50 licensing companies in the world for 25 years. Wow. She's worth personally over a billion dollars. Her company's oh multi-billion dollar company. And what you realize after talking with her, you're like, you think that she's a CEO that became a, 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 a supermodel that became a CEO. And when you talk to her, you realize, no, no, no. CEO she's a CEO a that happened to be <laughs> right. a supermodel at one point, right? Wow. And it's just so cool when I get to tell the story about how her first product after the phone stops ringing being a model, because that's what happened if you're a model, all of a sudden the booking stop is she went out with a pair of socks to sell. A pair of socks. Amazing. A model with a pair, like... I never saw her in a pair of socks before and everybody said no and nobody wanted them in the whole story and she finally got them to Target and they agreed to put, or JCPenney, sorry, and they agreed to put it in, in there and it was like, oh my God, she was so excited and they sold 100 million pairs, 100 million pairs of socks and wow. it's like, oh. That's insane. She, and she did that over yeah, and over. Wow, and Midas over. touch. Yeah. Okay, last, last question. So. Last my, you know, you're a creative person and just cause you're technically quote unquote out of TV business, when you're doing these interviews, when you're meeting all these people, cause you're so out there in the world and yeah. about, your wheels are always turning, right? So aren't yes. you thinking like, oh my God, why hasn't anyone done the Kathy Ireland biopic yet? Yes. I should develop that as a movie. Oh, why is, you know, can I help her with her I, book? Like I have that all the time. Right. So then how do you like, where I, I give them away. You I give literally them just people. giving them away yes. and you're okay with it. I love that. I call my friends okay. and I say, Hey, I'd like you to should do get, this. I, you should do this. Here it is. And they're like, great, we'll make a deal. I was like, no, no, don't worry about it. Wow. Just, you know, I'll take a favor from you one day. Cause in this business, you're more, I'm more yeah. likely to cash in the favor than I am a check. Like, let's be serious. It's right. Very hard. But you don't. So what I guess I'm getting at is though, you don't have that desire to make the thing anymore. Uh, no. Okay. And by the way, I was never a great producer in the okay. field. Like it wasn't like, Oh, thank goodness. Brant's on set. He's going <laughs> to fix everything. Like that's not the way it is. Like Got ask it. Sally Ann Salsano about having Brant on set. Like uh -uh. she'll tell you the good stories. Where it's like, Oh great. Look for the, you want to know who the EP of the show is? Just look for the guy doing something that would normally get someone fired. That's Brant, right? That's funny. Um, um, and so that was never my strong suit. Got it. Like, You're the idea guy. Yeah, and I'm the idea guy, and I, and I manage talent, well, all that kind of yeah. stuff. But like, you want somebody else making sure things are going the right way. I'm a gray area kind of person, you know, not a black and white. Yeah. This is the way it's supposed to be. So that was never, I want to make stuff. And once I stopped being able to tell when I was going to sell stuff, that's when I really had problems. Like, I used to know right. this show is going to sell. Yes, yes. And it would sell, of course, because I was very, very, very seldom wrong. And then there was sometimes like, this is a pretty good chance. And then I'd really be motivated to see if I can get over the edge. And then when it would sell, I'd be like, oh, my God. And sometimes I'd go out with something saying, this is not very likely, but it could. And sometimes I'd get those and be excited. And the last few years, it was like, I have no idea. And I have things that I thought were 100% going to sell yep. and didn't sell. Yeah. So that I just know. sucked the life it does. out of that piece of it. But now... If I have a great idea, I, I connect it to one of my friends that is a great producer and a great production does something. I had a Ninja Warrior-esque kind of obstacle course kind of show that I thought was just really, really smart and really cool. And I went to Arthur Smith because it's like, well, who else? Smith? Yeah. You know? And we sat down. And he's like, great. We, you know, we'll develop it out. We'll get a deal. And I was like, no, I, that's not just necessary. One, it. I'm not doing any work. Yeah. Two, the only reason it would sell if it does sell is because you're Arthur Smith. And like, I've known you for... 15 years if if you feel after you get the show on the air that it would never have happened except for that brilliant germ of an idea from brand you figure it out for me but other than that like it's great seeing you good luck wow. and i'm so excited to do that and like okay and sometimes i have something that i partner and i'll give it to somebody whatever but yeah yeah the day-to-day -day of me pitching a tv show it's over it's ladies over. and gents you heard it here for yeah. well probably not first yeah. but <laughs> do you have something left on your bucket list that you must do before you die um not really like I try to 
stay pretty focused on what it is now. Cause I have the phrase that I've been working on practicing is if it never gets any better than this, Oh my God, I'm so bloody happy. Yeah. And I've been in that situation where I've been at a friend's house who has the most beautiful, spectacular $30 million top of sunset home. And he's giving me, he's giving me a tour (laughs) and he's not miserable, but he's giving me a tour of it. And he's so unimpressed with his $30 million home. And I have given a tour of my home to somebody and given them the same unimpressed sort of look. And I realized like if I could afford the $30 million home at some point, I'd be unimpressed with it. So I'm working on the idea of like, Hey, if it never gets better than this, like if this was the exact life I had to live from here to end, like, would I be cool with that? And every day I'm just kind of like, Oh hell yes. Like for sure. And the more you can really own that, the easier it is when things do get better. It's like, Ooh, now it's even better. I can add more things. So yeah, my new mantra, I told this to Debbie Gibson this morning. I said, it's don't treat, don't treat a gift like a burden. Right. I love that. Yeah. Cause you know, you're always, Oh, so you know, like if it's really hot in LA, yeah. that would be my thing. I'm like, I'm so hot. And then I'm like, yeah. wait, you moved here. I know. So you wouldn't be cold anymore. Shut up. Well, I wrote this article for Forbes that was called, you know, four steps to, to not plan for success, but to practice for success. Yeah. Right? And it went crazy viral and it was weird because people really resonated with the idea that I say, like we plan to be successful. We plot it out. We envision it. We set on the path, but we don't practice not a single second on what it's like to actually be or feel successful. And I always tell people, clients, I say like, okay, if you're where your company was 10 years ago, if you could see where you are today, would you have been happy back then? You'd be like jumping for freaking joy. Yeah. It's like, well, when were you jumping for joy? Yeah. And you're like, oh, I haven't done it yet. I moved the goalposts down yeah. further. We could go on and on. I'm psyched for your your Tony Robbins seminars because that's going to start first. <laughs> it's my yeah. next my next phase. Yeah, you can get all the. What you should do is run the workshop for all the disgruntled dis, for all the disgruntled TV execs <laughs> who are just like, tell me <laughs> how what to do the next. The alternate to real screen. Yeah, Come that's to what we're adventure. all. Honestly, yeah. really. I take everybody on an adventure that instead is of the real screen. Best idea. That is great finally it's yeah. like the monopoly of real screen will be right. broken up yeah i love it well this is fa- fantastic everybody must buy the three minute rule pre-order it's now hope, on right? amazon yeah it's what it, it's hope it was the number one new release last week so that was kind of exciting. yeah this is gonna kill um, this is great for excited. everybody and i'm so excited for everyone to read it me too yay